Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, a couple of things I want to make sure you're aware of here in Blisterland. This week for our weekly gear giveaway, we are giving away a pair of skis from Renown. Now, as we have been saying for years, you can go check this out for yourselves in our reviews. These are arguably the most unique skis in the world, and you have a chance to win a pair this week. So you can go to the homepage of our website to sign up, or we will also include a link in the show notes of this episode. And an update on our forthcoming Winter Buyer's Guide. If you'd like to receive next week a downloadable copy of the biggest and best Winter Buyer's Guide in the world, then become a Blister member because as a way of saying thank you to our Blister members, they will be seeing the guide first. And then the print edition of the guide will be coming out and showing up a bit later. So become a Blister member to get the new guide first next week. And then by virtue of being a Blister member, you will also receive a bunch of exclusive deals on gear and you will get access to all of our flash reviews and deep dive reviews. And you can get our personalized gear recommendations. You just send us an email and we will figure out with you the gear that we believe will work best for you and where and how you ski or bike. Finally, and I am very excited about this, this week over on our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast, we have a very special guest and a very special co-host, Matt Manzer, our famous and much-loved Gear 30 podcast guest, will be hosting with me a conversation with the new Women's World Cup champion, Vali Hur. So that episode comes out this Thursday, so be sure to subscribe to our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast because I do not think you are going to want to miss this one. And now, right now, it is time for Cody Townsend and me to review the news of the past month that's related to the outdoor industry, and we also talk about some of the things that we've been reading and watching. Now, one important note here, during our What We're Reading and Watching segment, we start talking about some of our favorite all-time TV characters, and then it wasn't really planned, but that kind of turned into like a top 10 TV characters list. And full disclosure, I had just kind of dashed off right off the top of my head a kind of a top 10 list, and it didn't include a lot of female TV characters. And then immediately after we had hit stop on the record buttons, there was one absolutely egregious oversight that I thought of. So at the very end of this episode, I am going to share with you that massive omission. And this got me thinking about a bigger question about sort of TV characters versus movie characters. I think it's really easy to name a bunch of well-known female TV characters, but in terms of like generating an all-time characters list, it seems to me that it is really easy to name a ton of amazing female movie characters, but maybe fewer TV characters. So help us out here. 
Do you actually think it is the case that this is a movie characters thing versus a TV characters thing? And if not, which TV characters would you put in your top 10? I'm curious. Let us know in the comments section of the show notes to this episode what characters would be on your top 10 list or just give us your top 10 list. And I look forward to seeing what you all come up with. And with that, let's get to it. Well, Cody, we were texting the other day, and I think we were both sort of talking about there wasn't a whole lot of sleep happening for either of us. What's going on with you? Uh, Well, it sounds like we're in a very similar mode right now. We're in full, full production mode. I'm getting kind of all the pieces together to launch the 50 all the episodes for this fall and it's funny because i felt like i had all the time in the summer to put everything together and it's still coming down to a week before launch and you're just absolutely scrambling and uh i haven't found a job quite like uh film production where there's just so many little minute details that just take up so much of your time and so so yeah like you kind of lay down in bed and go like oh shit like i forgot to do this like literally create like one image that somebody needs or whatever and you're like oh i gotta do that who's that special thanks that i forgot and like all these little details so so it makes you just like yeah kind of you keep not sleeping because it's always thinking about like like oh god i gotta do that i gotta do that so so yeah but um that's the good news is we're about to release the 50 and for 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 you you're, you're working on your buyer's guide that's your your current sleep issue Yeah, wrapping up the buyer's guide, literally every year it just gets bigger and bigger. So it's a little terrifying. Like at some point we need to like reverse course on this because yeah, like 30 years from now, this thing will be like 850 pages. It'll be like Tolstoy's, you know, edition, Tolstoy's buyer's guide or something. But in like 11 by 17 format too. So it's like... It's like the the Bible, but with like pictures. <laughs> like <laughs> literally, we just write the Bible every year. Um, so anyway, but yeah, totally, co- it's coming together, coming together well, and people should check it out and sign up and buy it and uh, do all that. Because man, yeah, this is the part that feels like a little bit of the suffer fest on our end. But speaking of suffer fests, back to your project. I actually got to watch this yesterday. My God. Yeah, you got a little sneak peek of the the first episode. I don't know if you want to say anything about it or tease it at all. I mean, first of all, we should say, right, it's set to drop. Is it Wednesday, October 6th? Yeah, Wednesday, October 6th. And then from then on out, we have every two weeks an episode coming out um, through the whole fall into the winter. So, uh, but October 6th, uh, the first episode on Mount Stimson in Montana, Northwest Montana releases. And yeah, I mean, we're kind of renowned with the 50 for Subprofess. And then this one takes it just to a whole different level it was brutal absolutely brutal like you know we the 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 crew was myself nick russell and bjarne and all three including myself are like pretty good at like being in deep in the shit and so exhausted and run out of food and you still kind of like laugh about it you know you're like miserable but you can kind of crack a smile at the the hilarity of the situation and this was the first time i've seen all three of including myself 
break, like absolutely go past that point where you're not laughing about this anymore. You start to get angry. You start to get just like, you know, like trauma <laughs> starting to happen. Like you could see it in Nick, Nick's uh, face when it's, we're in the dark again for the third night. And just like, he, he's like, that was really testing me. And he's like kind of rubbing himself. Like, you just like, you can tell you're like, oh my God, like you actually went past that point. So, so that's what people have to look forward to, which I know, I absolutely know people love watching us suffer. And this is delivers a healthy dose of it. I felt bad because I kept laughing a lot in this episode and then it was like wait what does that say about me like watching suffering and the response is laughing and i wanted to share one quote i had a lot of quotes that i kept thinking like that was my favorite line from the video but i think ultimately what won for me is um if you don't mind nick at one point just said this is like a ninja warrior event if there was touring in it (laughs) Yeah, it was like, because it was the biggest obstacle course you could ever imagine. And so this bushwhack, it was a nine mile bushwhack to get up into the base of Mount Stimson. And it's like, there's no trail for this. There's very few people that have skied the southwest face of Mount Stimson, which is in itself, you look at it from the road from afar. It's one of the most like spellbinding faces you've ever seen. It's just huge. It's beautiful. And one of the things you do is you kind of look over the forest that it is before it and this nine mile approach is through like these deep steep canyon creeks and like absolute like that northwest kind of forest that is just where lodgepole pines are like two feet away from each other and then there's just willows everywhere and then this creek has such deep walls you're crossing the creek like a hundred plus times like taking your skis off and walking on slick boulders like all of us fell in this creek at one point like we all got our feet soaked and like within the first like hour your feet are soaked and you're like cool we got nine more hours of this so um that obstacle course like one of the things is with like touring or any sort of activity when you get in a rhythm your body kind of optimizes for that movement but you could never get it in a rhythm you're always like you know step up two feet to balance on this fallen log and then you know use your arms to push up balance with your heavy pack because you got all your overnight gear and then slide off the other end and take one step and do it again and then move your you know like oh there's a tree in the way so i gotta like step huge step to the right so you're never gotten this like you never got in a rhythm so it was just so so unbelievably exhausting like you know you think like walking nine miles and only a couple thousand vert if that's on like a road, lots of people can do that. When you do it in a, like a Ninja Warrior style obstacle course, it is on a different level. So, so yeah, now we're gonna we're gonna release that on Wednesday, and people get to laugh along with us and laugh at us, and I get to bring in the joy of of what really makes the Fifty Project special. Glad you all made it up and down safely if not efficiently. Yeah. <laughs> not, a, not a lot of efficiency. Yeah. In, the, in this episode, not much efficiency. All right. Next topic. Big question for you. While you've been in the midst of this, you know, production stuff, wrapping up this episode, you did sneak off to catch a 49ers game. Yeah. Home opener. This raised the question for me because I kind of wanted to talk about this game a little bit and a related question. And then I was like, well, we're supposed to be talking about the outdoor industry, football, 
is typically played outdoors, does this not make it fair game for a conversation about the outdoor industry? I I would love to have that be the case. It's probably not the case, but I would love to just talk football all day long. I think it's I have this like side dream of like working in uh, in sports media in in like NFL or baseball or whatever. I mean, maybe there's a connection. I actually have a lot of like the 49ers beat writers and some NFL writers that follow me on Twitter. So maybe there is like, hey, like, you know, some connection there. But it's probably, you know, probably most people on this podcast don't really watch football but at the same time it's become such a ubiquitous sport and is like dominates essentially our cultural landscape of america at this point that i i do think like you know people people watch sunday night football it's like you look at the media ratings of every football game and it's like you know top five for the week is all a football game so so maybe i don't know let's let's test it out we can talk about this niner game real quick (laughs) maybe maybe this actually ends up being our legacy that we we were the ones that sort of brought the NFL into the outdoor industry mm, yeah, and either ruined the outdoor industry or probably just ruined it. I don't know how, I don't know, but we both maybe can have this secret, you know, well, it's not so secret now. This could be an aspiration of ours, uh, what this would actually look like. I think it's an aspiration for a lot of football players to be in the outdoor industry. So the, Ooh, the, other, the other day, a um, guy swung by my house. Um, we were, checked out my van. It was with a neighbor of mine. And the guy is just giant, like six, seven, six, eight, two 260 pounds going from a mountain bike ride. And he wanted to check out my van. So I was like, give him a tour because I was out working on it. And I'm like, this guy is huge. And so I like text my buddy after I was like, was he an NFL football player? He's like, oh yeah, Robert Gallery. He uh, was second draft pick in the uh, NFL NFL draft after Eli Manning, and he was drafted by the Raiders. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah. So, and he lives up here in Tahoe, and a few other. I know like a couple other Niners players that live up here in Tahoe. So maybe there is the connection. Maybe we can get them to listen to this podcast, and then yes. we can talk about football, and they can tell us how out of touch we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like it. Since this was the long lead up to the question I actually wanted to ask you about, I texted you because the 49ers played the Green Bay Packers and I texted and I was just like, that was a hell of a game. (laughs) And you were just like, I don't know. I can't think. I'm just in pain because the 49ers lost in the last second in a very, in very dramatic fashion. But as neither a 49ers nor Packers fan, I could just appreciate it more objectively, like the game itself. So anyway, I'm sorry for your loss. Interestingly, I'm going in October to a Packers-Bears game where we are not going to lose to the Packers in the last second. We're going to lose by like 100. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably true. (laughs) (laughs) What was more painful, the 49ers loss or... Mount Stimson. Uh, Stimson's definitely still possible, but I would put it potentially up there with when I went to the Super Bowl in 2020 and that game I still haven't gotten over. So maybe it's on that level because like Stimson, I look back at and you have, it's that ultimate type two fun where you're kind of like, well, that wasn't so bad. And I kind of, every time I think about being in Miami and watching Patrick Mahomes destroy us in the last couple minutes of that game, I, I just, I'm like, that was miserable. That was awful. So 
So maybe that game was type three fun, the Super Bowl loss, and uh, Stimson was type two fun. So, so yeah, um, yeah, I, I've gotten over this loss. Uh, this loss, um, you know, it is. I don't know why. Like we, in, we invest so much emotion into sports, but it's also like really fun too. And I also think like it's a good kind of in certain way healthy thing to like be into sports because if you're just like watching society and keeping up with the news as your only thing like we we need distractions and whether that's in sport or whether that's in art or whether that's something it's like it's fun to be emotionally invested in something outside of just like looking at the world and going like ah there's so many problems this sucks (laughs) can i can i tell you my theory on this actually because i i think about this a lot like i I'm like, why do I literally care about this? Like, and so much, this is so stupid. Right. And yet here, here's my take. I have been a Chicago bears fan and cared about the bears longer than I've cared about almost anything in my life right? Like in terms of actual years, right? You have best friends when you're in first grade and then maybe you lose touch with them over time. And then you have new friends that are wonderful, but you haven't known them literally across your entire lifetime. So when it comes to like things that you have sort of been invested in and care about over the course of your entire existence, there's like your parents and siblings and then maybe almost nothing else. Do you like this theory? I do. I do. It makes sense. And I think like this is part of like some of the topics that we have in this conversations when we talk about like the value of skiing and sometimes, you know, because we can you can look at these sports and, you know, sports we practice and talk about on the show as being like utterly kind of worthless. They're distractions from doing good for society. But for the most part, like I think they're really important because they're part of enjoying life. They're part of having emotional investment in life. There's part of things that 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 identify who you are. And so just like just like skiing is an, the ultimate distraction and something to v- focus your life and, you know, your pursuit and your your chase of happiness in life, you know, sometimes that can come in sports and, you know, just the the following of a team and it, and its ups and downs and its tri- trials and tribulations. It's 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 fun. And like, I, I like your theory. It was like, yeah, you kind of know your sports teams. I, I know I knew the 49ers. I have pictures of myself in like 49ers jackets since I was like three years old. And I grew up watching the 49ers. They're what I know. I remember going to games as a little kid and they're a connection with your family, like with my dad being a football coach and stuff. So it's like, yeah, they're, they're, they are healthy in, in certain ways. Obviously you can take anything to a, a over an unhealthy sort of way, but uh, for the most part, you know, they're just, they're just fun. Last question at the peak of their powers. Which quarterback in 49ers history had the highest upside potential, you know, like, I don't, I don't think anyone can ask the question of like, who's the greatest quarterback in the history of the 49ers. I don't know that that's a debatable answer. No, it's not. It's Joe Montana. (laughs) Yeah. So my question isn't who's the greatest, but like at the absolute peak of their powers. Yeah. It's, uh, who's Who's the greatest? I mean, you, you, it's hard to go back to because it's partly like you can almost still say Joe Montana because, you know, what he was Tom Brady before Tom Brady was 
Tom Brady. Like he just this kind of like methodical kind of guy that was playing the game better than anyone and just would win games single handedly with his magic. You you just, you know, you leave 60 seconds on the clock and they're on the one yard line, have to go 99 yards. You're like, well, they're going to score and win, you know, just like Aaron Rodgers did to us this last weekend. You just kind of have that sort of knowledge as a fan that you're like, oh, we're going to win this game. Or, you know, if you're the opposing team, you just have this pure fear. But I will say, like, there was this point where Colin Kaepernick had the ability to be one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. And there was the his first year and his second year, it was like you're just watching someone playing a different sport. He could throw the ball harder than any human. Um, you know, it was almost sometimes a downside where you, he's throwing a 90 mile an hour fastball, 10 yards down the line, but he could also chuck it 70 yards and then he could outrun everyone. And as a Niners fan, the, we remember iconic Packers game when we played him in the playoffs and he ran for 180 yards and just single handedly dominated that. So, you know, his career was cut short for, uh, pretty much the main reason everybody knows he was pretty much blackballed. He did have a little bit of struggles. That's for sure. He wasn't quite, um, at his peak at, um, in the, the next years, but he was still a very legitimate quarterback, but there was this kind of peak of his powers time where you're like this, the, the ceiling is unlimited with this guy. So I did not see that answer coming at all because I've always thought peak was actually Steve Young. I, I agree. And I would just say we saw Steve Young's peak. Like we saw he played for so long and he won Super Bowls and he was an MVP. So we we know. And it's just kind of in that same regard. It's like if you're talking greatest quarterbacks in Niners history, you're going 1A Joe Montana and 1B Steve Young. So to me, I think we saw the his peak, Steve Young's. I don't know if we ever saw Kaepernick's. I don't, I you know, I still think there was like there was this ceiling and for whatever reason he didn't. He didn't get to reach it. Um, so there's this kind of he he was what's defining the new modern quarterback in many ways. You know, he was a little bit early for it. Um, so, I mean, he has a speed of Lamar Jackson in the arm. He has the like arm talent of like Justin Herbert. You're like is it was pretty bananas. So um, I he I think represented the most hope for us for a little bit. We should probably quickly get off the NFL since um, some people are like, what is happening right now? Totally. Let's do this. There was a name change Mm -hmm. in the ski industry that was announced since we, you know, between our last episode and this. So I think this was just officially a week or maybe two weeks ago. Palisades at Tahoe. Thoughts? Yeah, totally. Well, you know, there's, I probably laid out a lot of my thoughts on Instagram if you follow me there, but it's not the greatest place to communicate your full thoughts on it. And to me, there's, there's so many different angles and nuances to look at this from. Um, and the main one I look at from is that like, this was a very offensive term that a lot of people, including my friends, had told me that is like, I won't ski that place because that is just like, it's a horrible name. Like, it's really, really bad. Um, And then what it's changed to is something that is not offensive. And that change itself is something that people are having far too much like weight in like, oh my God, we're going to lose our history. We're going to like, this changes the entire scope of the valley. How are we going to ever get out of this or whatnot. And people are putting so much like weight in the, the old name and like, will refuse to call it the new name. 
But to me, like I look back at like one as a linguistics major, one of the things you study is language evolution and people don't realize how much language evolves in their own lifetimes. It, it evolves so fast. And then when it comes to like place names and names, like I always point to something that very few people know about Lake Tahoe. And to show kind of how like meaningless the actual change of it is and how this is, if you're going to change from an offensive term to another term, it's probably a good thing. So uh, Lake Tahoe in the 1800s, his very first designated name was Lake Bigler, um, which nobody knows. Even people that are up here, like 99% of people didn't know that at one point it was called Lake Bigler. Lake Bigler was this uh, named after a governor, uh, the third governor of California. So it was in honor of him. In the 1870s, um, it kind of came out during the post-Civil War that, or around the Civil War time, that uh, Bigler was a Confederate sympathizer. He had ambiguous thoughts about slavery, but was kind of more like, yeah, I don't care. It should be up to states' rights. And he was a secessionist. So the federal government was like, we don't want an iconic lake like Lake Tahoe named after this governor who is potentially pro-slavery and is a secessionist. So the federal government sent the Department of Interior in to do an investigation and change the name. Well, they met, they met the, the local Washoe tribe. They got the original name of the the lake from the Washoe tribe being Dagawao, and then changed it to Tahoe, which is a terrible mispronunciation of the original Washoe name. So I look at it as like when people are saying things like, oh, this is so woke and this is modern and all this stuff, you're like, were they woke in 1870s because you had the federal government come in and try and honor the local Washoe tribe by naming it after what the Washoe called Lake Tahoe. Ironically, Dagawao means lake. So currently Lake Tahoe means lake lake, (laughs) which is really funny. But here's this thing where like a hundred plus years ago, they changed something because Uh, The name was associated with a racist secessionist Confederate sympathizer, and they honored the local uh, native tribe to a different name, and it's been named that ever since. And like people are none the wiser and people just know it is Lake Tahoe. So this thing will take time for sure. I think it will, you know, I've catch myself quite often already just in conversation, dropping the old term because it's what you know, and it's going to take potentially a generation. Like it's going to take my soon to be born son growing up with only knowing it as Palisades and he will call it Palisades for the rest of our life. Our generation, it may take, we might not be calling it what we want to call it, the non-offensive term. It'll be like drop out there. I'm going to do my best because I don't want to offend my friends and know that every time I say it, you're like, Ooh, that's an offensive term. And if we can, eventually it'll change and people will be none the wiser. It's interesting. I think first of all, well done laying out some of that history there for us. And the funny thing I found myself thinking was somebody that's maybe being real quick to scream woke, maybe just check yourself for a second to be like, do I know anything about the history of the terms involved, uh, you know, of the the transformations of these things. And I mean, look, I'm not excited about every t- 
time there is some, you know, quote unquote woke issue. Like I'm not trying to live on the cutting edge of every new complaint or something all the time. That can be exhausting. And so I I understand that impulse, but I think, so I'll just say for myself, even when I'm like, oh my God, here we go again on something else. It's a good reminder. Like, let's actually dig in on the history. And if you're not willing to do that, then I frankly just care a lot less about your opinion because it's lazy, right? Like it's just a lazy response. And so I don't know, maybe it may be a good lesson for all of us. The laziest of responses is like, it's not offensive. And you're like, no, it really is. And like people point to like, well, uh, where the term came from, it was actually uh, uh, Eastern native tribes term for women. But then that kind of got why it became offensive was when they started, when colonial started coming through, kicking people out, murdering, rampaging, raping, doing just horrible stuff. They were calling the women squaw, a term that Western native tribes had no idea what it meant. So it was just white people calling uh, native women squaws. And then all of a sudden it was like, like that's uh, you treat us like this and that's what you call us. So that is very offensive. It's just very similar to the N-word, you know? It's like slavery and the N-word go hand in hand. Colonialism and squaw go hand in hand. So that that is lazy to think it's not offensive. And I see that all the time. And you're like, well, that's from your perspective that because you don't know the history and you don't maybe know any native people or the local Washoe tribe who's like, yeah, it's pretty horrible. We don't feel welcome there because of it. So, and I, again, I'm not for every woke thing too. There's certain things like the Latinx um, trend, which has gone through a lot of media stuff. And it's like 68% or something. It's in the high 60s percent of Latinos prefer Hispanic and they don't even know what Latinx is. And you're like, here's this thing that was kind of almost invented by woke white people to say like, oh, Latino is gendered. Let's change it, make it non-gendered. And most people are like, well, in Spanish, uh, O and A, it's like, it's not necessarily related to sex gender as much as you think. There's just genders in language. Like there's an African language with 13 genders. (laughs) <laughs> and so and they're not related. We, we kind of almost like anthropomorphize these genders of language, but it's not there. So, yeah, I'm, again, not supportive of all the changes, but that one was pretty, I think it's pretty damn apparent that it needed to change. <laughs> again, I think we can just uh, sum up with this is like language does evolve. And I know I don't need to tell you that. A, a lot and in our own lifetimes. And if you, I mean, if you look at the history of the Italian language, you can make the case or you can tell the story that Italian is just Latin that goes through a number of different dialects and gets twisted around enough that now we just popped out and instead of calling it Latin anymore, it's Italian, right? And all the Romance languages, I mean, these things evolve. They always evolve. They will continue to evolve. So something that we should probably just recognize up front. Yeah. And that's where I go to this is just like, it's not that big of a deal. Um, the actual change, um, in the way that like it is a big deal for the people that were like horribly offended by this by natives by the local washer tribe it is a big deal but for you as a uh, you know a person that just skis the mountain it's really not that big of a deal because ultimately i say it's like the mountain is still the same it's still gonna have snow it's still gonna be a really fun place it's still gonna be where all our friends are going and skiing and we just refer to it as palisades um 
So that that's the case. Um, yeah, I was a bit involved with the process of of the name change. It was, uh, you know, I thought they did a really good job of like researching the community. They did like huge, kind of like big gatherings of a lot of different people from the community. Whether it's like old people that have been here forever, to like ski racing coaches, to young people that call this home, to like what, trying to find the meaning of what that valley is and try and come up with it. And so they did a, I think they did a pretty good job. They're not going to satisfy everybody that's for sure i think it was almost a, like a it was such a hard task to rename something that's going to satisfy everyone um palisades itself i was happy with because it's you know an iconic kind of peak or run in in on the mountain and yeah it just kind of pays homage to that i really like the eagle logo too that was a subtle nod to Sh- that was a subtle nod to shane too which was a big part of it and because he's our hero here and you know the eagle statue that is in honor of shane at the top of the eagle's nest which is renamed mcconkey's um you know it's kind of a little subtle nod to that which i i found really cool next story maybe in some ways one could argue a little bit related to what we were just talking about tesla partners with the nambe pueblo of new mexico basically the gist here is there is a what seems to me strange law in New Mexico that prohibits vehicle manufacturers from selling directly to consumers rather than through a franchise dealership. And with setting up this center in the Nambe Pueblo, Tesla is able to sort of go around this law because the Tesla store will now sit within the boundaries of a tribal nation, which is not subject to the state law. So we'll have a link to this article and you can check this out for yourself to get some of the details. But I don't know. I read this and just thought, first of all, I don't know. My immediate reaction was like, this is really cool. And I mean, another maybe relevant thing to say here is this 7,000 square foot Tesla store will occupy what was once a casino near the Nambe Falls Travel Center. And that casino closed in 2016 after about two years of operation. I'm curious to hear your take, Cody, but I, on the face of it, just took this as, you know, I mean, I lived in New Mexico for a lot of years. And that was kind of what the business would be on a number of Pueblos, right? There would be no tax on cigarettes and you got your casinos, you know? And when I saw this, I was like, wow, what an interesting way to bring a cutting edge business into a Pueblo and something that I think has the opportunity at least to be a really, really positive development for tribal people. And I also just liked the kind of disruption of what, again, I don't know the background of this, but what seems like a very weird law that means you have to go through a franchise dealership 
Well, there's the, the, the franchise model, like it's actually has its roots and some good consumerist behavior. Um, so like in franchise, the reason why there's franchises and why certain states make it law that, uh, cars can only be sold through franchises is for anti-monopolist ways. Essentially the direct sale, like let's say you have the big three automobile companies like Ford, Chrysler and GM. And they're just selling only direct and they're only through their own stores. You, there's a lot of potential for some price fixing for monopolist behavior and such. So what they did, um, a long time ago was create laws where it had to go through franchises so that there would be competition. Um, I still don't think that worked out quite as well because it's like the big three year suppliers are still be able to control it. Um, but from that, which I think had good intentions. They've been now passing more and more laws. And the first two laws to pop up were uh, for these, you cannot sell direct um, vehicles were in Michigan and in Texas. And they were very specific and very modern laws that were put forward to prevent Teslas from being sold. And you kind of look at it and you're like, well, Texas, oil state, Michigan, car dealership. So you knew that these didn't, these weren't good faith laws. They were laws that were passed by lobbyists and by the auto industry or the oil industry. So at that point, you're like, yeah, like one direct sales do have a potential for monopolist behavior and, you know, kind of screwing over consumers. But what I do love about this is like just getting around it, <laughs> being like, oh, yeah, you, you don't want to sell direct. Well, uh, Teslas are high, heavily in demand. They're currently outpacing uh, electric car sales are outpacing forecasts that all the consultancies kind of predicted. And so they're they're really becoming more ubiquitous. And to get around these laws, which are trying to protect oil interests and um, other automobile manufacturers they're getting around it by just going to the the reservations which i think is pretty cool like in a certain way it's a little bit of a middle finger to them and at the same time potentially can really help um you know these reservations which have really really huge struggles with creating any sort of economy for for themselves so to see something maybe in a, a little bit more healthy like electric vehicles as opposed to casinos is, is a good thing but granted i don't give any a reservation any flack for doing things like casinos because they're just they're just trying to get by really a hundred percent my thought is i would love if this was maybe the start of you know like casinos are not cutting edge of what's happening in terms of the economy you know hardly cutting edge well i guess my hope would be that this might get reservations and businesses that are at the forefront of things thinking about, huh, maybe there are opportunities here that might be mutually beneficial. But I love this idea that that Pueblos and reservations might somehow start to become new centers of innovation and being on the forefront. That struck me as just being a really intriguing idea and perhaps something that could be really beneficial for some of these communities. So that's all very much wishful thinking, but I don't think it's unrealistic to think that this might be the start of something new. Yeah, no, it could be. Um, I think it's just, you know, this is, it, it, pre it provides competition to the own state that the reservation lives in. And so they're like, they're getting around it. So uh, yeah, because, you know, as we were kind of saying, some of these laws that were passed were kind of in bad faith. So uh, I, I, I dig it. 
Next topic, and boy, I feel really seen uh, on this next one. The question of should you shower? Uh, <laughs> this this was an article in the Wall Street Journal. What do you want to say about this article or the topic? The whole thing is, like I said, it's both hilarious, but also I was like, maybe I've been on the right side of history <laughs> more than, well, more than I should admit. I don't know. Yeah, I. it's funny. Probably a lot of people are like, you're really going to have a debate about not showering. You're going to go weigh the pros and cons of this. You guys are ridiculous. I'm turning this podcast off. Uh, but no, it's uh, this is something I've kind of heard of before and experienced in another circle. So I uh, I'll tell you a story when I was I spent a lot of time in Pemberton, B.C., and I spent a lot of that time living in Mark Abma's house, professional skier and like professional hippie in a certain way. Yep. Like he's, yep. uh, but, but like redneck hippie, like loves yeah, big yeah. trucks and like ripping around on snowmobiles. But he also has like a full hippie house with like cold dunks and hand-built cedar saunas and all this stuff. And he, he's awesome. One of my favorite human beings, but he started back in the day talking about he doesn't wash his hair ever. Like he hadn't washed it in two years. And I was like, whoa, that's disgusting. And he kind of told me some of the stuff that's brought up in this this uh, article in the Wall Street Journal of like how like your hair like naturally oils itself. And it actually is like what you do is it goes through kind of a gross period for a couple of weeks because your hair and your follicles are so dry that it over oils it. And then it kind of finds a balance and then you're back to normal. So I experimented with that. I didn't wash my hair for six months i would like run it under water and whatnot but i wouldn't put shampoo because it like strips all the the natural oils out of it and i would say the first three weeks were disgusting it was like a big oily wetty snotty mess um and then and i think i was happened to be away from my wife at that point so she didn't notice but then it was kind of funny because about like two months in i remember at least going like yeah your hair looks good and i'm like keeping a dead secret that I haven't washed it in like two months or whatnot. Um, and it wasn't until about six months in and she was like, she's like, God, your hair kind of just looks weird. It kind of looks disgusting. And I told her I hadn't washed it in six months. And I swear I was like the closest I've ever been to being divorced at that moment. So I have, have experimented with it. I think there's some validity to it, but I also think we live in a society where if you stink like hell and are, have oily hair, you're probably going to be pretty frowned upon so uh it's funny to start to see this in kind of mainstream media because i thought this was just for hippies <laughs> or dirtbag skiers slash climbers so look my thing on this is yes i shower but i probably am not on the upper end of at least people in this country, right? I'm not like some people are like, I shower every morning and every night. And I'm like, who the fuck has time for that? Well, what I look at it is like, read this article. If you live out of a van or you're a ski bum, cause then you can get like real cool justification. Cause they talk about like your microbiome and how that protects itself. And it kind of goes into that knowledge that, you know, it's like, don't put hand sanitizer on your hands every two minutes because it, you know, you actually do need to be exposed to some bad bacteria to kind of toughen up your immune system, especially when you're, when you're a kid. Um, so yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. I mean, I think we'd be a pretty, there is a point when, like you yeah and i also think about it yeah like they they bring up like you know 1800s in france no one showered you're all and like you 
go back like another 300 years and you're like, yeah. And that's when the plague happened. Yeah. And like, <laughs> yep. they literally say like, all you had to do was shower and, or like wash yourself with soap and you wouldn't get the black plague. So kind of a balance here, you know, sometimes those things that reach back and, you know, I always laugh about the, especially it's brought up now is like, Oh, you just got to feed your immune system, eat good food and, uh, you know, live a healthy lifestyle and whatnot. And you're like, yeah, that is good for you. But like, think about like cavemen, like you're like, yeah, all organic. They lived all natural food, natural wild grown meat. It had a strong immune system died at 32. (laughs) So it's like, there's this, there's this line where modern knowledge of like cleanliness actually can help you live longer. So, um, there's a balance to this. I I agree with all that. I just like the idea that those of us who would not be offended by being called like a dirtbag skier or climber or what have you, the celebrities are trying to be like us now. There you go. There you go. Where do you want to go next? Um, I think the biggest story, and we were like a little struggling for kind of inside industry news this, this month. I think it's kind of been a slow month. Um, besides maybe the, like the name change, there hasn't much on ski industry news or outdoor news, um, stuff to really talk about. But this one was kind of something that kind of has to do with the outdoors and also had major, major headlines. And I kind of wanted to talk about a little bit of more of the media's involvement in it, not necessarily the story itself, but it's the story of Gabby Petito. So probably everybody knows it at this point. Um, you know, if you don't, the quick background is boyfriend, girlfriend, longtime high school sweethearts get in a van from Florida and go out to visit um, all these national parks, um, like a lot of people. And then they were putting it on their Instagram page and following it and just in a certain way, very basic, <laughs> you know, like, oh, get in, a, get in a van and go to national parks. And eventually, uh, Gabby Petito went missing. Um, unfortunately, uh, they found her body in Grand Teton National Park. Um, during this time between when she went missing, uh, there was, I saw it on social media, media people like, calling out to like, hey, these two people living in a van and this woman has gone missing. Um, Keep your eyes out for her. They last saw them in Grand Teton National Park. And then it started to become more and more of a story as they started searching for her, especially became more of a story when her boyfriend returned to Florida and then disappeared and would not talk to police or anything. He wasn't a suspect, but now he is. Um, You know, now they also say that this was most likely a murder. So the story itself, you know, he almost... It's it's what it is. There's nothing more to talk about that. This kind of stuff happens, especially the sadness of domestic violence and um, murdered women. But what I wanted to talk about was kind of the response that came on after this. So this obviously was making major media headlines at one point. Um, but then what came after that was a response to be uh, a thing where like in Wyoming uh, in the last year, there was 791 missing women and they happened to be indigenous women and none of those made major headlines. And so people started really like hammering on the media. Why aren't you covering this? Why are you covering this? And the one thing I wanted to talk about with this is that quite often the media follows the people. And this isn't a thing that the media is going like, we're not going to cover indigenous women. We're going to cover this missing cute blonde woman who goes uh, and do and do that. The thing about it was that people were talking about this on social media months before it went to major media. This was something that I saw in my own social media feeds. 
Media quite often, its for-profit model, follows what people are interested in. It's not necessarily always leading at it. It goes to that, that old, old maxim in media of if it bleeds, it leads. Well, at which if it bleeds, it leads, which it, what it means is that like, yeah, if there's a murder, they're going to put it on the front page. Well, the only reason it's going to go on the front page is because you put it on the back page, people are going to immediately switch to the back page to read it. Um, so when it comes to now like internet media, it's even easier to track what people are interested in. So quite often the media is following in a for-profit model, what people are clicking on, what they're reading. Cause it, creates more advertising revenue. It creates more time spent on the site. So and in this instance, it really wasn't the media pushing this. It was us as citizens that were following this story and clicking on these stories over and over and over. It's us talking about this story. You know, we're taking a little bit different take about it. That creates the perpetuation of why we're following missing blonde women and not missing indigenous women, which then goes into my thing of like, we have to care more about this as a citizen, uh, citizenry of missing and murdered indigenous women to actually get it to the front page news. So to me, like the debate that it was like kind of screaming at the media is like, we need to scream at ourselves um, for this because they're following what, what we're, what we're clicking on. I mean, you know, I didn't like in for blister, if you, I'm sure know what's doing well on your site. And are you guys going to like, if your quick reviews are doing poorly, do you think you're going to put more investment in it? Or are you going to put more investment in your long-term reviews? Because, you know, people are reading your long reviews more, or it's just, that's the way media works in, in many different ways. I have to confess when, when you had proposed this and, you know, I, I've, been familiar with the coverage of the story in the story, but I confess, I immediately went to the media side of this. And it makes maybe some sense because I literally started a company that was based on like, you know, I I always say like, one should always, when it comes to media, keep in mind the question of like, what are the revenue streams? And does the revenue stream undermine the integrity of the work. So admittedly, when I looked at this, I was thinking about, well, yeah, you know, we still, when you're, when you are mostly or exclusively operating on an advertiser based revenue model, you are going to be paying a lot of attention to like, where, where is the interest? And then we're just going to write about that and cover that often beat it to death until it seems like our collective attention has moved on to something else. So I actually, I, I really appreciate what you just said, because I went back to like, see media, this is why if you're just going to be after eyeballs, the media itself and what is being displayed and discussed is maybe not going to be right about the right thing. And you actually shifted the responsibility there to being like, we all need to check ourselves individually. There is a relationship there, a dialectic there. I always say that there's, you know, people talk about bias in media and there's only one bias in media and that's profit because ultimately like that's our system. You know, there's, if there's two 
kind of systems of media, there's either state-run media or business media. And a state-run media has its own trappings, of course. You look at like RT in Russia, you look at, um, you know, oh gosh, when I was in Greece, there's a Chinese English station called like Global News, I feel like. Um, and I was watching stuff in Greece and English language where they were debating where, um, saying that the coronavirus started in Rhode Island is what they were pushing, which was like, well, this is state-run media. It's propaganda. And for-profit media, like, yeah, you can say Fox News is propaganda. No, what they are is they're just trying to make a profit. And they're just identifying a target market, being conservatives and going like, this is what we're delivering to them because they keep coming back. <laughs> so the same goes for the New York Times. Same goes for every single media source. They're delivering what their audience wants to click and read on because it's for-profit. So that is the one universal bias of media. So if you see stuff you don't, if there's stuff in media you don't want to see, don't click on read about other things subscribe to other sources you know put your money where your mouth is when it comes to this so um again that's my kind of only take with this is that like quite often we bl blame the media for our own problems but it's that the media is just almost a reflection of our own values well said next topic a really interesting one veil veils epic past sales increase 42% due to their 20% decrease in the price of a pass. Wild. Thoughts? Wild. I think we had talked about this early in a, a podcast of saying like, you know, oh, they're decreasing their pass prices. And we talk about the expense of the sport and how hard it is. And we were saying like, this isn't for the good of the skier. They're doing not, not doing this out of the kindness of their heart and trying to open it up to more skiers. They're doing it for profit. And this quarterly shareholder meeting, uh, public shareholder meeting, uh, CEO, current CEO, Rob Katz, said this, that they had a 42% increase in Epic Pass sales. So the thing to me is like, we've already been seeing these pictures of insane lines at ski resorts and specifically Vail owned ski resorts. Is this sustainable? Like when, where's the breaking point? Where is this point where people, the experience of going skiing is going to be so miserable that people aren't going to do it anymore, that people are not going to come up there because, you know, I thought that was in the last couple of years. I thought that you'd start seeing these lines and being like, how, why would you want to drive up from Denver to Vail for the weekend to get five runs? and spend thousands and thousands of dollars, stand in line for an hour and a half, ski down one run, be cold because you just sat in line, go spend $50 for lunch, and then go get another run and stand in another hour and a half line. Now we're talking about 42% increase. And granted, these aren't just for, you know, Epic Pass encompasses a ton of resorts and you think, oh, maybe they'll spread out to other places. But like, again, there's going to be a point where this consumer, uh, the customer experience is going to be so bad that people aren't going to start buying these. And I kind of feel like this is Vail testing that theory. I might have a weird take on this. I'm all for it. I am all for it. I think, and I could very well be proven wrong about this, right? I think what this really signals is something that seemed obvious to me two and three and four years ago. This signals the death of the single lift ticket purchase. I think that's actually the biggest thing here. And, you know, 
that was evident before, you know, Vail decided to drop the price of Epic Passes. You know, people have been complaining for years now, right? It's always like, oh my God, a, a, a single day lift ticket at Vail now costs $220, right? And it's like, yeah, because they don't want you buying single day lift tickets. And so to me, this that has been evident and obvious not just now with this news of a 40% uptick in Epic Pass sales, they just made the math now so one-sided that it literally doesn't make sense to go purchase ever, basically, a single-day lift ticket. So I don't see this as terribly alarming. I, I see it more as the death of the single-day lift ticket. But again, we've been on that road for five years where... I mean, unless you are literally only going to ski like one day a year. And I think the average skier visit days is something in the six or seven or eight day range. It didn't make economic sense anyway. So we'll see. I mean, maybe you're right that resorts will now be, you know, 42% more crowded. I just don't believe that's true. Yeah, like you, you're saying that these 42% represented the people that were still potentially buying single day tickets, which was uh, even at that, I was I'm like, why would you ever do that? And you can spend $600 and that gives you three free days. You know, after you ski three days, you pay, paid it off compared to that $180 ticket for a Saturday in December. So, um, yeah, I know it's going to be it's going to be interesting because but I, I still see like there's there's got to be a point where people are just like are, are we going to all of a sudden see a 20 percent crash of epic pass sales in one year because everyone went up there and was just like dude skiing sucks it is a well, you know this is not fun um and that's where you're going to get a level setting okay now our price points are here um you know i get people that like locals into and palisades locals that are like looking at it and from the way of like oh, i wish pass prices were high because, you know, back then when it was $1,800 for a pass, like your place would be empty quite often. And so, but then you're, there's that counter argument. You're like, well, then you're just making skiing more unaffordable for everybody and you're just doing it for your own purposes. So yeah, it's a, it's a tough one though. And I'm, it's going to be, it's going to be, I think it's going to be interesting because I can't imagine people will want to sit in traffic for seven hours to drive up to Vail to then you know, stand in line the whole time to get like four or five runs in. Like, how is that a fun customer experience? Right. But so then perhaps naively here, and I will admit that up front, won't this just be a bit of market forces applying? So if someone is like, I no longer enjoy the long lift lines at ski area X, well, then they will go to different ski areas or they will try to free up and like ski, you know, take a uh, vacation day in the middle of the week as opposed to the weekend. So I, what I'm not trying to say here is, oh, there is no conceivable downside to any of this. Like there's always downside to literally everything, every single move. I just think on the face of it, I, again, when we have spent so much time talking as an industry and on this podcast about we are trying to bring the expenses down to let more people get into a, 
already expensive sport. I just am not ready to be on the side of like, this is horrible. Get the prices back up there. And yes, there are going to be adjustments. And I think the market hopefully will do what it does is like, if your favorite bar starts being wildly crazy every Friday and Saturday and Sunday, you're going to find a different bar or you're going to go a different day of the week. And I think that's what we're going to see here. And yeah, not everybody's going to be stoked, but I don't really know what the better alternative here is because I'm not on the side. If you're the person that's like, I liked it better when I could afford the $3,000 ski pass and there were fewer people on my mountain. Well, I'm just not on your side on that one. Yeah. I, and I agree with you. And I, that's why I kind of said, this is, I feel like them testing the market trying to find that line so um it'll be interesting to watch and see all the pictures coming out from everyone on the weekends and skiing and being like oh my god that line looks insane um yeah so um where we where we where do you want to go next where i actually want to go next is um super weird and definitely doesn't qualify as outdoor industry news at all i just wanted to ask you about this this week amazon introduced and announced this thing they're calling Astro, which is like this little mini R2-D2 kind of cute-ish looking robot thing that you can buy for like a thousand dollars and it kind of just follows you around your house. And my question here is, Cody, is this actually our future? Or will this fail to gain traction? I mean, it, doesn't every major Hollywood sci-fi movie for the last like 20 years say that this is our future? I mean, they also predicted that like we'd have flying cars by now. <laughs> That's but, true. So, so, Where uh, are our flying cars, Hollywood? And now, yeah, we've got instead, as Peter Thiel said, he's like, I was promised flying cars and instead I got Facebook. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, this is, uh, I, I mean, it probably is, you know, I, I start to look at here and like you, I've been reading a lot of baby books and like some of these books are comparative of other countries and how they raise their kids. And one of the things you start to look at is like the struggles in your society of just getting stuff done of just like, you know, how expensive childcare is in America and how hard it is to acquire. Um, you know, we're talking, I've talked with parents around here that are saying like, yeah, you got to get on this wait list for this preschool a year before, like get them before they're born, get on the, you're like, Jesus, what are we doing here? And then you're, you're faced with raising a child, but creating an income, cleaning your house, doing all the normal chores. So you're like, yeah, like I could use a robot to help me around the house a little bit. Um, so I would say, considering the way our society is set up and we're kind of are in many ways dehumanizing society that, yeah, it's probably going to go this way in a certain way. It's still probably really far out, I would imagine. Um, you know, you'd start to read about AI technology and I think there's some pretty big hurdles to get through before it actually becomes of service. I'm not sure I agree with you on that one. I mean, first of all, it's Amazon. You've probably heard of them. Pretty big company. They're going to be pushing to have this, like, they've got to be interested in mass adoption of this within three years. And frankly, I think that's actually more like within one to two years. Now, I there's one comment I wanted to single out here. So if, if you know, I guess gun to my head, 
do I think this is about to get like become more of a thing or less of a thing? Not gain traction. I I'm I think we're both on the side of like yeah, this is probably happening. We've talked a decent amount, you and I, in these reviewing the news episodes about fallout from new technologies. So chew on this, folks. The president of Amazon's hardware research unit, when asked, like, like, why are you doing this? Should we do this? His quote was, the question wasn't, should we build it? But why shouldn't we? Which is like the, the the setup for every single like terrible film that everything goes sideways. It's like building Skynet. Like, why wouldn't we build Skynet? And you're like, hey, this. Have you seen the Terminator? <laughs> Those movies. And I mean, we we've obviously been talking so much about, you know, there was this this Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, that just provides facts that are extremely disturbing about some of the side effects that all the time many of us are spending on social media, you know, the side effects of that and the severe consequences of that. And, you know, so what we've been saying is like, man, we need like big tech to be thinking harder up front about those unintended consequences. And we now have a little cute robot that's apparently going to follow us around all the time in our houses. So one, from just a privacy point of view, this raises questions, but I'd sure feel a little better if the folks in charge of designing this seem to show any more acknowledgement and awareness of like we really need to think hard about the potential downsides here and i'm not sure that i'm getting that sense when they're rolling out cute little astro yeah no it's interesting and i know politicians this is where our government failings and dysfunction really are tough um because nothing gets done to regulate this but they are thinking about it so i had i had a conversation with gavin newsom once um we were at this like dinner together and um he was talking about how when he was the mayor of, of uh, San Francisco, he enacted a minimum wage for um, that was a like $15 minimum wage or I think even potentially higher. And he had someone come up to him like within a couple of weeks and say, hey, man, thank you. You made us billions. He's like, what? What are you talking about? And it was this company that was making robots for the fast food industry to essentially robot uh, to make the entire fast food process uh, devoid of humans. And that's their whole thing. And it was just this kind of this point where he was talking about the future of AI, the future of automation, the future of robots. And this was like four or five years ago. And I had this conversation with him. He's like, we need to address this. There has to be something. But have we seen any sort of that in our government addressing this? No, not at all. And that's why things are running pretty unchecked. So it's going to be, you know, it's going to be an interesting wild world that we're coming into with automation and robots chasing us around our house. Where do you want to go next? Um, I think we're like, I'll kind of go to this, um, you know, this kind of continues on our topic we always talk about, but housing. A mountain town housing. Um, I think it's just something that is so pertinent to so many people around here. Um, one of the the biggest byproducts of the 
California recall, um, which was very unsuccessful and which Gavin got a Gavin Newsom was very easily reelected um, and just shown to be a complete waste of money. I was like two hundred and seventy million dollars spent on something for 30 percent of the people to vote to recall. So um, but right after that, with kind of that political capital, he passed this law called SB nine which allows for all single family zoning in California to be converted to multifamily dwellings. So uh, one of the things that's kind of hampered any sort of housing is a lot of laws, a lot of nimbyism, a lot of like towns saying like, no, we, we want to preserve the character of our town. You can only have single family zoning. And it's somewhere around like 61% of housing units in California are sing- zoned single family. Now it goes that like, hey, if you have a big enough lot, you can build an ADU, accessory dwelling unit. You can build a second house, make it into a duplex, and that's completely legal. Um and they think that this potentially could uh, put about 700,000 new housing de- units into the California, um, essentially into California. Uh, the state thinks it needs 1.8 million homes by 2025. McKinsey, the large consulting firm, says 3.5 million. Um, to me, more than anything, this is like a huge, huge chain change because like our American society is built on single family zoning. We are built on suburban areas. We're built on sprawl. Um, and in order to address so many of the issues that we have in California, from housing to homelessness to even wildfires, like one of the things that we talk about with wildfires is like we just keep sprawling out into wildland urban interfaces. Whereas if you can concentrate things more in where things are already built, then we're able to address a severe lack of supply. So Pretty interesting because like it's one of those news items that kind of just kind of flies under the radar a little bit, just goes out there, but could have massive, massive changes on on our society. So and I know for myself, like it's I I got very lucky with my house purchase and long story to it. But essentially, I have a a accessory dwelling unit that is fully legal. Um, It happened to be because the prior owners did something. They didn't close a permit. It got I, I'm the only household in my entire neighborhood that is zoned to be multifamily dwelling because of a lot of weird, just kind of like coincidences that happened. So that would allow me to be able to afford this house because I was able to like kind of have some mortgage help. And like, there's a lot of things about this that are huge. Like you could have this neighborhood where these places are actually multifamily dwellings and more people can live. You have homeowners like myself that are able to afford a house like this and be able to then house other people that aren't necessarily buying homes. So huge news, um, something that could happen more in mountain towns. Yeah. And in fact, you know, for anybody that hasn't listened to this series we've run on the Blister podcast called Mountain Town Economics, check it out. We're really happy with the feedback we've received on that from from folks in government and folks in local politics and people who just live in towns and have said this has been really helpful and just, you know, getting me a bit more informed um, about some of these different dynamics. But, um, you know, in our third episode in that series, talking with Scott Ehlert, I mean, we were talking a lot about this move away from single family zoning. And so this seemed like seems like a positive development. And yeah, hopefully this does prove to be a good move for 
all kinds of communities everywhere. And on a bit of a related note, keeping on the housing thing, there was another announcement. The town of Breckenridge has placed a cap on short-term rentals. So we're seeing that move made again in another mountain town. And you know, they're hitting the pause button. Another town is going to be sort of reevaluating how we're thinking about short-term rentals and housing in general. One last thing that I wanted to note, because this again is something that Scott really wanted to underscore in this statement put out by the town council in Breckenridge, the last sentence talks about how most importantly, they want to fulfill, quote, an obligation to our community's charge, as clearly stated in our destination management plan, to fiercely protect the character of Breckenridge. And now I cannot, I cannot not hear Scott talking about the potential sort of code words when we start talking about protecting character. You know, so again, if you're not sure what we're talking about there, please listen to that episode, that third episode we did with Scott Alert. But um, so this is going to be interesting to see. And we'll see if all of this is just hand waving and nothing is going to change. We're just talking a nice talk. Or if we actually do see valuable and meaningful changes taking place in our mountain communities. So that, yeah, that term fiercely protect the character of Breckenridge and fiercely protect the town, uh, the town's character. That is just, it's like that doesn't have any good definition because what is the character of a town? You, you have to really define it in a very, very specific way because that could be, you know, we want it to be like a country club and the people that are already bought in and, you know, want it not crowded and want their open spaces. Uh, they want it like Jackson Hole, the fierce, you know, if you read uh, Billionaire Wilderness, um, the fierce protection of character could mean that like, yeah, no one can afford to live here except for billionaires. Um, or is it like, hey, no, we're like a ski bum town and we want to do everything. And that's going to include building a lot of low income housing so we can preserve that character. It's such a weird coded word that really doesn't mean anything um, that, you know, people can use to their advantage. So it's an interesting I, I mean, generally, I feel like I see that term used for not the greatest ways. Um, it hasn't been used for like, you know, I loved your conversation about Aspen and talking about the pres preservation of that character, that town has involved building a lot of affordable home, affordable homes and housing and, you know, preserving so that there's a workforce of 3000 people that are blue collar workers that love to live in Aspen. That's the character of it. Even though we define Aspen as one of the wealthiest towns in America. So it's pretty interesting. Where to? Uh, okay, back kind of more to more fun topic. And when we have a little idea for this one. So this was inspired by um, this article in Out There Colorado um, where uh, Powell Zogfruga, I don't, sorry, don't know how to say your name exactly, uh, resident of Fruta, Colorado. Um, he did a thousand and uh, 100 mile plus summit of all the Colorado 14ers in one self supported push. So, 
pretty wild of just like hiking off trail, only human powered, summoning all the 14ers um, and self-supported. That's actually like not quite self-supported. Self-supported actually means you bring all your food the entire time. You know, if you're stopping into towns and whatnot, it's not necessarily self-supported. So kind of gray area with that. But for the most part, he did it human powered all in one push, all the, the uh, 58 14ers, which is pretty Pretty wild. And I think what we wanted to talk about is like, we're seeing more and more of this. I think this is the like kind of the new trend is like just, hey, what's the harder, more human powered suffering adventure that we can go on? How can we do this thing like climbing all the 14ers and make it even harder? So we wanted to go back and forth and propose some ideas for people out there um, from some things that we'd like to potentially see accomplished in this vein of trend. So why don't you, you threw this one out there. So why don't you, you start first? Well, you know, one of the things we've seen is a number of different ways in which people have traversed the United States and some have done it on bicycles and a number have run it. One of the things I wanted to see was somebody moonwalk across the entire United States. I don't think that has been done. Yeah. So, dude, you have to dress up as Michael Jackson to do I that. I was not in my version. I don't think you have to. Okay. But I want every freaking step to have been moonwalked. Oof. That's a, that's a good one. So, I mean, this trend, like we were kind of saying before, it started, I feel like, with Goron Krop, um, who in the 90s rode his bike to Everest, summited Everest in a unsupported, self, uh, self-supported self alpine style with no oxygen, then rode his bike back home, which is like, I think was way ahead of its time. And so we're kind of starting to see, yeah, like again, more and more stuff like this. And so the future, some of my ideas um, this one was mine. So we've seen it a lot, the Alaska to Argentina traverse, whether that's on foot or whether that's on bike, but you do it and you got to climb the biggest peak in each country along the way. So not super out there. I think that's to be done. I mean, someone someone should actually do this one. Um, this other one that actually uh, I think would be the coolest one, because we always talk about going to the top of Everest being like, oh, you climb the highest peak in the world. Well, honestly, every person that knows knows that Mauna Kea is the biggest mountain in the world. So who is going to go to the bottom of the ocean and walk up Mauna Kea from its lowest point and then continually get out right out of the ocean and then keep walking up to Mauna Kea? So who's going to do that one self-supported push that's the one i want to see most actually from our from our list here even more than the moonwalking one so yeah that that's a good one yeah what other ideas you got the first idea i actually put out you kind of shot down because i think you were worried that this would definitely end in death but 100 <laughs> again thinking apparently i uh you know i had my moonwalk across the u.s i like the idea of starting like, let's go across the U.S., but like, let's start maybe in Hawaii and then swim to the western shores of California and then continue to either walk or run to the most eastern point of the United States. But you you shot that down quickly because I think you just thought that definitely... <laughs> Definitely is gonna eat is gonna result in being eaten by a shark or dying, <laughs> drowning. Like you're gonna have to be very heavily. I was saying start from Hawaii, row to Alaska, and climb Denali. 
like, why, why not? Why hasn't that been done? Um, you know, and, and then on that vein of thought, I was like, oh, back to this Mauna Kea. Why don't you start at the bottom of the Mariana Trench? Go to the lowest point and somehow, I don't know how you could do it, but maybe one day walk up from there and then summit Everest. That's like the, the king. Like that's the most vertical feat you could ever do, uh, from the lowest, lowest, lowest point of land. And granted, it's under the ocean to the highest point. So why, why hasn't someone done that yet? That's a great question. Yeah. It's a great question. Our other kind of idea basically had to mostly do with just being absolutely bare naked and then kind of doing all sorts of different things, right? In the idea of like, you know, we already talked about like, well, what does self-supported really mean? You know, and if we're really just wanting to keep strip away more and more and more from any kind of assistance or aids, I think we then need to just talk about, we need to see more stuff done bare naked, Totally. Like, that's the whole thing. Like, we we continually climbing world, romanticize these kind of human-powered adventures, and then certain people are like, oh, you had assistance, and you had a tent, and you're like, I bivvied it. And then, you know, you strip away more and more things, makes it more and more cool. So, like, you, if you're going to climb Mount Hood with no assistance in its truest form, you're going to start with your feet in the Pacific Ocean, and you're going to walk up there butt naked to the t- summit. Because crampons, those are aid, you know? Like, you, you, you're using them to not slip and they, they make your ascent a lot easier. Ice axes, hell, even warm clothes. They just, you know, they make it too easy. So starting at the beach naked and climbing peaks, that's the future if we keep going down this path. Cody, I hate to do this to you right now, but today I'd like to announce that I am launching the BN50 <laughs> project. <laughs> and so... You all probably can just stop watching Cody's series and and I probably just stole and took all your sponsors because we're going to we're going to do this the right way. Yeah, the B, the BN50. Are you really confident people are going to watch that? Uh nope. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> no, no, You're right. I I uh, I'd like to announce the formal cancellation of the BN50 cool. project. You're right. Upon 3 seconds of thinking about yeah. it now. Yeah, Mount, Mount St. Elias naked would be pretty, pretty tough. Doable, but tough. You'd have to really time it well. So, cool. Well, I think that's our news for the day. I think we can kind of start to wrap it up with our favorite end of talk, what we're, what we're watching, what we're, what we're seeing out there. Um, what, do you, what do you got? Man, not a whole lot to offer this month, I, I hate to say, because we've been putting out this monster buyer's guide, and so that has been taking up a lot of time. But couple things. One, dating back to our last reviewing the news episode where we were talking quite a bit about wildfire management and Cody, you had mentioned the podcast Life With Fire. After that episode, um, I got a text from Paul Forward who mentioned a book called The Big Burn. And Paul said this was one of the best things that he has come across on the topic. And so I have yet to get to this book, but I definitely trust our friend Paul. And so I'm more kind of putting this out as a suggestion to the rest of you. And I've already, I actually bought the audio version of it and it is on my list to to get through the big burn because I want to better understand why we can't figure out a clearer wildfire management 
policy. So anyway, I'll start, I guess, with a, a recommendation, but something I have not myself yet read. Yeah. And I'm in the same boat with you. Just been too busy to actually even watch much. Plus, it's, it's that time of year where I'm just watching a lot of sports. And if you know this about me and my wife, we just love sports. And we've got the Giants, um, San Francisco Giants in a massive pennant race right now. We've got the Niners. We've got Formula One. We had the Ryder Cup, which I had never really watched golf, but the Ryder Cup is really fun to watch. Uh, so just been watching a lot of sports and yeah, it's, it's a good time for that. So I think more than anything we wanted to get into um, in honor of Michael K. Williams, who uh, was played Omar on what I think is the single best TV show of all time, The Wire. Uh, he recently passed away. And so you wanted to get into what your favorite TV characters of all time were. Um, and I was I would say I had a, a tough time with this list of changing it. So get into it. I had forgotten to mention on like our last several reviewing the news episodes that I had been going back and rewatching The Wire because it had been a long time and I talk about that show all the time in different conversations. And so I started rewatching it and then we got the news of Michael K. Williams' death. And, um, and I, so yeah, full disclosure and why I, started thinking about this one i just think he is a remarkable person and two omar little is my favorite tv character of all time and the first time watching the wire i just couldn't believe this character you know i was like i've never seen anybody like this really in any TV show or movie. And I just, I was fascinated by this character and by the person playing the character. So then that got me kind of thinking about, so what, what are my actual favorite characters? And I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'll actually just name my top three and then we can see if you have landed on your own. I, I kind of have ended up with like a list of a top 12 but my top three actually goes Michael K. Williams's Omar Little character. Number two for me is Gus in Breaking Bad. I love Gus so much, so very much. That was my number two. And then my number three is actually Homer Simpson, which is a little strange since it's not an actual person. There's a voice behind the person, of course. But yeah, Homer... I mean, as I was just going through my list, I was like, I can't actually put somebody above Homer Simpson on my own personal list. So have you worked out a top three yet? I haven't worked out a quite a top three and it goes some variation of what you've already got in here. I personally, I think I would put a number one in Stringer Bell, which you had number five. Idris Elba is amazing. And I honestly, I do think he is the next Bond. That would be awesome. He, he's such a good Bond, like so good. And like the funny, the first time you ever hear him talk in his home British accent, you're like, what? <laughs> you're British and you're like, have this super sophisticated British accent. Um, but Stringer Bell, really just such a good character of just this, the the man behind the strings, pulling the strings behind this ga gang, doing everything right in many ways and being the smarts behind it all, but still it all kind of catching up with them. I thought was just such a brilliant character. Um, 
I do. You had right in there for Walter White. Breaking Bad is definitely, in my opinion, the second. Um, and I would actually just bring up, I saw this poll recently where it was the worst, most hated TV character of all time. And I think it was The Ringer that did it. And what one was Skylar White as the most hated, which I find so fascinating as an insight into our society, because here you have Walter White, who is one of the greatest characters ever. And he tells this story of a chemical te- or a chemistry teacher becoming a monster. And who always had that self in him. And you have Skylar White, who's trying to do the thing of keep her family together, alive, and in a normal way. And she becomes off as the bitchy, just trying to stop Walter White from being his genius and doing what he's doing and like literally murdering people and potentially his whole family. And you're like, wow, it was such an interesting insight into society that because, you know, I've watched Breaking Bad twice now. And I will, you say, like, you're so fascinated by by this character that you're seeing, like, yeah, Skylar is trying to hold him back. And then the second time I watch it through, I thought it was, like, really, I so much more identified with Skylar knowing what was going to happen with this. So, to me, I think almost putting Skylar White up in the top is a pretty healthy look because how you feel about her, I think, really goes down to how you feel about yourself and society and kind of... You, the way we look at our, you know, the family unit and patriarchy versus matriarchy, all that kind of stuff. So I would actually put Skylar White in there because it just she's such a divisive character. All right. Well, I guess if we're going to run this out, I wasn't sure if we were. But so for me, I have Omar Little 1, yeah. Gus from Breaking Bad 2, Homer Simpson 3, Walter White 4, Stringer Bell 5th, which you've already spoken to. Then I went... Tony Soprano, my seventh, and I would not have said that ex- until I've gone back to be rewatching The Wire. Bubs, Andre Royo is the actor, but Bubs is amazing. Like, and and that was a little bit lost on me. I think the first time through the series. Um, so I went Bubs seven. I had Cartman from South Park 8. Now is the time in the episode where I get mad at you, Cody. I had Coach Taylor from Friday Night Lights 9. Should we do should we do our monthly disappointment update? Yeah, we can keep it we can keep being disappointed in me. That's for sure. <laughs> okay. And then I, then I just round it out and then I'll get through this. I Axe, the character Axe in the show Billions, I I think is actually fantastic. I went Norm from the old comedy show Cheers. As my eleventh, and then I had to I had to figure out a place for Ted Lasso. This one probably is a uh, like a history bias or recency bias thing. Um, I went with Ted Lasso number twelve as my list. Solid list. I think the only person out of there that I might throw throw in as well is Tyrion Lannister, uh, Peter Dinklage. That character is amazing. I mean, the character in the book is amazing, and Peter Dinklage like knocked it out of the park. So Tyrion Lannister could potentially be be up there. You also kind of go, I don't know, maybe into some of the like comedies. Like, is Kramer from Seinfeld up there? This is the part where I probably confess. I think I'm the only person in the world who wasn't in on Seinfeld. I watched it when I was young. You know, I thought it was. 
I was, when I was young, it was pretty funny. I would go back and watch and they're, they're a little ahead of their time. Uh, some of the other comedies you got to go, uh, I would definitely say, uh, from Curb Your Enthusiasm, Larry, like that's a pretty good one. And then one, one we're missing out of here is the office is genius. And it has to be Michael or Dwight Schrute on this list. Like those two characters, like they're pretty iconic. And uh, those are the, the only things missing. Otherwise, I think your list is pretty comprehensive. Well, anyway, that is our rather random and somewhat off the cuff take on some favorite TV characters. Rest in peace, Michael K. Williams. All right. Well, Cody, I think that's a wrap for us today. What's going on with you now? Are you are you still putting the final touches on this fifty project episode, or are we? Is that off your plate? That one's off my plate, but I've got three or four more that are in the editing. I just had an editor quit, so I'm trying to <laughs> get yeah, doing a lot of that. So we've got two episodes in the bag, ready to release, and then we got the next few after that. So trying to put all that uh, together. The also the movie Summit Fever, um, which is our Mount Saint Elias, that will that's going to come online in December, but it's showing at some limited film festivals and kind of um, showing at High Fives and I have three, which are in respectively in Annecy, France. So probably listeners to this aren't going to be able to watch that there's the if3 in montreal and whistler um, and then solomon's doing a little mini tour to, um, at some local theaters um, called the quality ski time uh tour um, that's starting on thursday in denver and then going up to breckenridge after that so that movie will be showing this week that is done um and then yeah pretty much kind of at this point it's uh getting ready for winter getting all these episodes out and already starting to put the pieces together um for next winter with throwing a massive twist into it with a baby. So we'll see about that too. (laughs) Awesome, man. Hey, appreciate it. Take care. And we will talk to you soon. Sounds great. See you, Jonathan. Okay. Now, as I said in the introduction, there was at least one massive and completely unforgivable omission from me in my top 10 TV characters list. And again, to be honest, I didn't actually know that Cody and I were going to be like hammering out a full top 10 list here. I had just kind of dashed off a top 10 list in the doc that Cody and I work off of. So anyway, that was not this like incredibly well thought out and researched list. Still, there was an unforgivable omission, which might be obvious to a lot of you since you have heard me mention this show a ton on this podcast and others. And that would be the main character of one of my favorite TV shows of all time, The Queen's Gambit. That would be Beth Harmon, played by Anya Taylor-Joy. I love that character so much. And if Omar Little is my favorite personal TV character of all time, then Beth Harmon is neck and neck right there with him. So maybe it's like 1A and 1B, and that order would probably swap back and forth depending on the day. Now, there are probably also just a ton of TV series that I personally haven't watched, so I am sure I've missed out on seeing a number of top 10 worthy performances. So again, let us know what characters you think deserve to be on this list 
And then that will now finally bring us to the end of this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Cody for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again later this week. And again, don't forget, Bikes and Big Ideas Podcast. Subscribe to that to hear the conversation with Matt Manzer and new World Cup overall DH champion, Valley Hur. Don't miss that one. Check it out this Thursday, and we'll talk to you all real soon.